0: Hi, Stitchers. Welcome to Taltriz Talk, where we share conversations about Palestinian embroidery. Join me, Lina, and my co-host, Amani, as we chat with talented embroiderers and artists, sharing their stories, inspirations, and the cultural significance behind their work. Fellow listeners, grab your Taltriz project, thread your needle, press play, and let the stories unfold, one stitch at a time. Hi everyone, I'm so excited to introduce Sara Jayusi from Dira. This is an incredible uh, company that has come about in the last few years and I'll let her talk a little bit more about that as we we have the conversation. But just for the audience to know, this is a small Tatriz design house that sheds light on the art of Palestinian embroidery and challenging deep-seated prejudices against Palestinian culture. Welcome to Tatriz Talk, Sara. Thank
1: you. Yeah, my name is Sadejah Um I'm a Palestinian designer and founder of Dira. I founded Dira with my husband in 2020 in the midst of COVID. It was a COVID project <laughs> and um, it was honestly it was nothing that I expected um, for it to be like what it is today to be honest um, but I'm so proud of everything that has happened with Dira, the community that we've built, people that we've met in the community like you guys Um, yeah so basically that is me I'm based in Canada and uh, but everything about Dita all the production and everything is done in Jordan and yeah that's basically us in a nutshell
2: Amazing, and I am a personal fan. I own a few pieces. I was just saying before we jumped on how um, I recently got one of the tuab that you have, the the pink and blue one. I don't know what it's. I forget what it's called. Is it the Zahra? Zahra? Zahra, yeah. The Zahra Tob. Um, I love it. Photo shoot coming soon. <laughs> oh <laughs> oh, for sure. Don't don't you worry. Um, but Sada, you know, we always like to start by asking our guests about their personal Tetris journey. Um, so we'd love to understand from you, like, what brought you to Tatriz?
1: So like I said, t- um, well, I'm Palestinian, obviously. So Tatriz is a part of like our culture and it is a part of our heritage. So it is always kind of there in the background. But it wasn't really the center of like my, I want to say, focus until... I um, Until I started started DITO so initially I am a nutritionist. I studied nutrition in, in, in university and I practiced for four years, but after that when um, I moved and then I Me and my husband were supposed to move from Saudi Arabia to Canada and then we got stuck in Jordan And so we were like, okay, what are we gonna do now? You know, we saw this this opportunity where we felt like people really did used to come to Jordan and they used to come to Palestine or the region and get their stuff yearly or every two years and part of the main things that they would come and buy, which was one of their essentials, was trees And that kind of used to kind of happen in the background. I didn't really used to pay much attention to it. But then my husband, you know, kind of, you know, told me that, hey, you know, no one's traveling anymore. Why don't we try and set up a website for people that if they want to buy their tatris that they usually come to Jordan for or to Palestine that we can facilitate that for them. Everything's going online now, let's try and do that. So in the beginning it was basically, we didn't have that much capital, we weren't working. And so we decided to invest in a few machine embroidered pieces and just try our luck and see what happens. Literally did the photo shoot on Farah, who is my husband's sister, on our (laughs) rooftop. I love it. And I borrowed my cousin's professional camera, and we literally just put like a draped like a white sheet behind her, and that was it. Um, We DIYed everything, and after that, after it kind of started picking up, I was like, okay, I really want to invest in a few hand embroidered pieces. That's really what I wanted to do. And so when I had enough money to invest in a few hand embroidered pieces I decided that there was always like a middle person between me and the embroiderers I still didn't know like who was making the pieces themselves And I decided that I want to meet the embroiderers like I want to go and see the people actually making the pieces and Then that's when things really took like a hundred and eighty degree shift for me was when I started meeting the embroiderers I They honestly taught me so much about about so many things, not just the trees, but like how it just opened my eyes. It wasn't my first time in the camps. Like I've been to a few camps in Jordan before, but never in in this context where I was kind of seeing firsthand how much they are exploited financially and just how beautiful and intricate the work that they're doing is and still they're not being compensated at all and just how little they will ask for because they're so worried that they might lose whatever jobs that they have and i saw firsthand just how much people take advantage of that because but anyways i'll jump into detail about that later but that was when i learned like i would sit down with them and i they would be doing embroidery and they would tell me like Mm -hmm you Know in Arabic, like, but you don't know how to do, tataris, <laughs> you know, and so they, they like, you don't know how to do, tataris, we'll teach you. So they gave me, I like, love the
2: Arab shaming,
1: yeah. <laughs> they gave me like a thread, you know, and they taught me how to do it. And so I learned the basics with them, and I saw how they would like troubleshoot things easily. Like, I'd be panicking, like, we had like a piece or whatever, and they'd be like, Just give it to me, I'll fix it. So I learned community, I learned the art, I learned the love behind it, I learned um, what it means for them to be a refugee, what it means to be in the camps, what it means to be stuck in the camps. There was so much beauty that I saw, but also so much stuff that was very, very hurtful. Um, And so that was my intro to Tatriz, but there was so much for me to deal with, and I felt very responsible um about all these things that I was learning as well um while being with them and yeah it's just a like I said it's a it's a it was a very Sudden exposure to a lot of things, mm-hmm. um, and I felt like okay, I'm I, I can I can this is something that I can actually invest in. Like before, when we when we started, I didn't really feel very excited to be honest about mm-hmm. DIRA in the beginning, like because it was just machine embroidered stuff that I felt like I was just drop shipping, you know. But yeah. uh, even when I started designing my own stuff, it didn't really bring much joy, I didn't really feel very invested. But when I went into those camps and we started designing and learning about the Tatris and the history during the women and their conditions and everything I felt like okay this is a really big deal this is a big thing there that was a I deeper can, can, connection there's there's a deeper connection there's something there's a responsibility there's a drive and I feel like I can make a change
2: wow I love that I really love that and I I love something that you said about um the threes and community as well um, it sounds like you built community with these women. They taught you, they took you under their wings to teach yeah. you. Um, and it oh, sounds like
1: so much.
2: <laughs> oh I'm sure they do. Arab Arab women will do that. <laughs> so I'm assuming you're, you still have community with these women because they're still working with Dieta, correct?
1: Mm, yeah, hundred um, percent. So the first camp that I was exposed to was um, the Baha refugee camp. That's the first camp that I went to. It's the closest one to my home and um, in Jordan. And so I went into uh, who is currently our lead embroider's house. Her name's is Ahmad, and Ahmad basically she took me under her wing, um, <laughs> basically. And um, she's been. She's now my uh, I'd say right hand. Uh, in all of this and uh, yeah she she <laughs> she's a wonderful woman who recently lost her husband but he was blind before right that home. and she was um, she was actually not always in the camps this is actually uh, she has a specific story where she was in Saudi Arabia and they were doing well but um, her husband lost his eyesight and he wasn't able to work anymore so when they went back to Jordan they weren't able to work legally mm-hmm. and so they went to the camps and they stayed there and um, she, it was a big shift for her from being, you know, well off, and then having to go to the camps and her house is, uh, super, super basic. Like everyone else in the camps It's not very well reinforced and they don't have enough money to get by. And so it's, um, it was interesting to see all these women, like we see a lot of Palestinians coming through unimaginable circumstances, how strong and resilient they are. And she's no different. Um, and so yeah so she basically you know she's been doing for so long she she um, yeah so she basically she she took me under her wing and I'm forever grateful to her and everyone else that I learned uh, I learned from and we've been partners ever since me and her and then we I also went to the um, refugee camp in Jarash, which is another level of um, that's much worse than than other refugee camps because the Gheze refugee camp in Jerez is obviously for people from Gaza mm-hmm. and people from Gaza in Jordan are not documented they're not allowed to have um, national numbers and so which is mm-hmm. a part of collective punishment for people from Gaza and um, so they're unable to at all um, leave the camps they don't have any legal work so I felt like okay I need to focus a little bit more here because these are women that can't leave um, and so, yeah, so there, um, my lead embroiderer, Amani, um, who's also a single mother who cares for her family over there, um, as well, and she, uh, she's also taught me so much about, you know, resilience and tultris, and she absolutely loves doing tultris, it's done. Um, she actually just enrolled in university as well, so I'm very proud of her for doing that. um and uh, yeah, so oh, there's yeah. so many stories, so many, so many things, so much in the community that you learn um, about through tatliris. That's the thing I think all of us know, and I think we want to raise awareness about, is that tatliris isn't just tatliris. Like there's so many mm-hmm. stories behind it. Everything that is behind tatliris is what mm-hmm. you know. What we're trying to tell, what we're trying to show to the world.
2: Lena, I know storytelling through tatliris yeah. is like your personal passion. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, I I learned about it when I was doing some history research on Tatris And uh, I'm like actually very curious because, you know, before the Nakba, the storytelling was done by the woman who was going to wear the thobe, And so now when you have kind of this intermediate person, how are you incorporating some of the stories that are being told with these women and, and in the in the. Um, in the collaboration that you do with them is that kind of coming out in the designs in the process of doing the Tatris like are they splitting up the pieces and each woman is working on it together in community I'm really curious about about how that's kind of playing out
1: so the process of um, of how we customize is basically I um, speak to the whoever like the client or whoever wants to create the piece itself and I like creating this you know one-on-one very not formal you know um, space where this person I can get like to know them and what they want to incorporate in their dresses a lot of the time some of them have a really you know good vision of what they want um, sometimes they need a little bit more guidance about okay um, do they need, um, you know, what a- what aspects of their culture that they want to incorporate, if it's a certain areas of Palestine, if it's symbolism, if it's certain motifs, if it's a lot of the time, which is something that I absolutely love, it's like, this is my teta so you know, and pictures of that, and that's so Aww. beautiful. I think it's so, so beautiful. Yes. And so, just that, and then we design, and then I, tra- you know, uh, translate those designs into to the women in the camp. So... What they typically do is, yeah, I tell them, like, I tell them, like, so-and-so is from hon and she wants to incorporate this in her thobe, and she's going to wear this to her wedding. Like, I tell them the backstory, <laughs> and yeah. they're they are always so, you know, after that, like, they do, yeah, so it depends on the time that we have. I prefer if, like, the one embroiderer can take the whole thobe, just because she's going to make more profit off of it as opposed to having mm. more embroiderers do like just parts of it. But it really just depends on how much time I have with the client. Like if I have sufficient time, I would rather just one person do it because it's for her. It's a project. She gets paid for it. And that's done as yeah. opposed to splitting it to a couple women. Um, and so in that case, so she's invested in it, you know, she she's been working on it for months. So it's like, it's her project. So when she's done with it, um, and they send it to, we send it to our tailor and then that goes to our customer. A lot of the time they're texting me like, but Lake, did she send you any pictures? Oh, that oh, is so
2: sweet. No.
1: Oh, and I'm like, so I'll funny. ask, but it's like, it's private. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So now sometimes I like try to take a picture of it before it goes and then I send it to the embroiderers and they love seeing it like together like they always like to see it like assembled and if a lot of the time like a lot of my clients do send me a picture and I'm like can I send this to the the embroiderers because it's like it means so much Uh, they've been working on it for months and months and months they want to see it you know on the arous or on the bride or whoever's gonna wear it like it's like it comes for full circle for them so it's it's so nice to like, and then a lot of the time, even like my customers would type out um, like a thank you to the embroiders that I would like translate and send to them. They love that. That is they so just
2: beautiful. Oh,
1: oh yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And this whole community, like me being in the in the middle of all of that, is just so beautiful. Like seeing people that um, that love and value Tatriz and our heritage and. Um, appreciate the women that are creating it and that are willing to you know that really want to compensate them and the women that love doing this because they are being compensated uh, for their time and for their for their efforts and then that's why they're so invested like if they weren't compensated and if they didn't feel happy and rewarded about the, the work that they're doing they wouldn't care <laughs> about like what is, like they would have negative feelings yeah. or negative negativity towards whoever it is that's buying this though but we want the whole process, and I'm so happy that we've created this environment where the whole process is kind of like a very loving and and beautiful community building kind of process, and that's really what I wanted to do, as opposed to just being like a fashion business. So that was a very long answer. It was to a great, it was a great answer <laughs> to the question. I love it, I love it.
2: I feel like you know, it 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 sounds like too, like the embroiderers, <laughs> they put their heart and soul into the pieces and they're telling their stories almost in a way like combining it with the customers, um, the client's stories. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, Lena and I both stitch, Lena has stitched her own dove. She knows how, how long that takes. We know how long it takes to, to switch to stitch. Um, so there's definitely a appreciation for all that work that gets put into it. And I think, you know, having you guys, you guys are almost kind of the middle, the middle people of bringing the diaspora, you know, to uh, home really, you know, through Tetris because oftentimes it is hard to find quality um, thwab in the diaspora that you know are from people who are being properly compensated. Um, And I know we've talked a little bit about that, but that is a big issue Um, and I know you guys That's very important to you to ensure that your embroiderers are being compensated properly and that there is value in the the, work that you guys put out.
1: Yeah, I mean number 1 is well to just to comment about something that you just mentioned. I actually thought about this, Lina, that uh, I want to send people that like clients to you first yeah. so you can teach them tatrees and like the history before they come to me for to buy the products. Cuz I'm like, listen, wallah, you're not going to know how much time yeah. these things take until you actually practice. So like precursor to buying a film needs to be to Lena for like a full course.
0: (laughs) Well, and and actually that's a really, that's an actually really interesting like segue because one of the questions that we wanted to ask you was about, basically that perception by your clients like do they have a sense of how long and how much work goes into hand-stitched pieces because i know for me (laughs) like the only reason my father um started to value tatris more is because i had a month off between like jobs and i was working on this this project that was a pillow it ended up being a pillow but i was working on it like eight to 10 hours a day, seven days a week, because I had nothing else to do. And it took me a month, you know, and so he was at the end of the month, he's like, Oh, my God, we did not pay enough for this pillow, because I was imitating one that we had. And like, he had to, he had to witness me for a month before he could come to that realization. So I'm, like, I'm so curious with your clients, how do you, how do you manage that, I guess, and and maybe it kind of comes as part of the price tag, like maybe that's kind of like you kind of filter out the people who wouldn't be able to value it if they're not going to actually make the purchase. But I'm just curious how yeah. you have those types of conversations and this is and just talk about really that with them. This is a great
1: topic that me and Omar, my husband, have a lot of the time is that um, like value and price point as opposed to having it, like it's a very thin line between having something that's valued enough and pricing it at that but at the same Mm -hmm. time making it attainable and not causing like this rift where people just can't buy those because they're so expensive, you know, Exactly. you still need to put it at its value that it is a handmade thing that takes months. But at the same time, I do not want it to be like something that's ultra expensive that people can't buy still. So there's a very thin line between those things. And so, um, For me, that's why I still have the machine embroidered items because I still want people to be able to wear their heritage, to have thobes, to have embroidered clothing, but they don't have to break the bank if they don't don't necessarily at this moment have the funds for it. Um, But still, I'm able to, through the prices that I put for my hand embroidered items, to pay everyone that's involved in the process fairly and to value them for what they actually are, which is heirlooms, like you're gonna have this for life. It has your life story, and even yeah. if it is just like a, a ready design, it's going to be something that you will recycle and wear all your life, and it has a, a really beautiful meaning to it. So, um, with like clients, it really differs. It just depends on the person. Like some people actually practice tailoring, so they understand how much time it takes. Um, other people don't and um, it's a, some people are actually really shocked at how much time and effort it takes but it's a good learning process for them um, you know as an intro to this aspect of their culture and, um, and at the same time mm. like the women themselves they're able I always try my best to give to give them as much time as they can so that they're not stressed about it but at the same time provide enough work for them so that they're able to sustain themselves throughout the months. It's a, it's a, it's a balance of like everything together. Um, but like I said, it's really important. Like that's the thing, like there was like, I was having this conversation with someone where people I think in our community when they see like designer bags for example or designer stuff it's very easy for them to go like yeah that's $3,000 for a small bag whatever you mm-hmm. know that's that's because it's like a what, whatever brand bag and I want that and yeah. I want to look good so I want to buy that but yeah. when you say the same price for something that's actually taking months to make and there's so much that goes into it there's like this question of like "Yeah, yay, yani, why is it so expensive and so regardless of the actual running costs of running a business, there's, there is there's this this really big part of Tatariz that was very devalued over time. And there are, I think, many aspects that played into that. One of them being, obviously, and I think the number one is the colonization of Palestine, and just everyone. Um, at the time, I think it was a very important tactic of um, systematic erasure to make us feel like savages, and everything that is incorporated in our own tutris, or in our own sorry culture, is, you know, associated with being backwards, with being savage, not civilized, not taken for for you know, not taken seriously. All of those very demeaning, you know, views that we have internalized as a community. Unfortunately, and so a lot of the time I would ask people that would tell me like it's expensive like oh What do you think about so-and-so bag that's like those four thousand dollars? Do you think that that's you know worth it? Do you think that that's okay to pay that if you think it's okay to pay that amount for a bag? But you don't think it's okay to pay that amount for a soap, we have a problem so (laughs) That's my issue with with and I have to say it's a very 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 small number of people that actually think that that I've come across but um, I know that there's, there's unfortunately this very big um, movement right now, um, that sorry in the past that really caused a lot of damage to tatliris and to the tultris, the embroiderers. And so when I first started out, my lead embroiderer Ahmed told me that all of the money that she's making from Tatris, and it wasn't, it wasn't just us. It still isn't just us. She works with other people. Um, and so she was saying that she was putting into her daughter's education because she didn't want her daughter to not have a degree like her and she wanted her daughter to be an architect so her daughter studied architecture she, got, she graduated last year and um, she was telling me I'm not going to let my daughter do tatris like it was a thing like she did not want her daughter to do tatris so I asked her why and she's like yeah because I want yeah. her to get like a, like a good job you know and so that to me like yeah. struck a chord like why is tatris not a good job why is the yeah. considered something that's less than it's something that she does not want her daughter to go through because of all of the exploitation that she has been through she doesn't she wants better for her daughter so i was like okay we can change this so that what if actually it was so good to the point that people would actually want their daughters to not necessarily not study you know, university or whatever but to actually incentivize them to the point that they actually yeah. want their children to or their daughters or even their sons their children to to learn these um, ancient and very important crafts in our culture, and uh, to my surprise, one of the last, uh, one of the shawls that we did a few oh. months ago, she texted me. She's like, my daughter did love... this shawl because she needed the money for something. And so I was like, okay, cool. So there's like mm-hmm. a, a, there's there is wow. like a, a an incentive with money that she wants to you know she needs the money and so she's trying to do but that to me is good like if because if you compensate them well the the people actually that have all this knowledge then they will um pass it on to the younger generations and we're not going to lose it and that's the thing like money is a big part of that and if they're not compensated well if they don't have enough money they're not going to feel you know they're not going to want to pass that knowledge down so if we use Im Ahmed and all of her generation of embroiderers, like what are we left with? That's the thing, what are we left with? These are very skilled women that have been doing this since they were very, very young. And so it's such a shame that people don't think about when I'm bargaining for tatris. Yeah. I'm actually, what I'm actually doing in, 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 in the future is I'm letting these women and this art die out mm-hmm. because the younger generation doesn't want, you know, oh, pennies. That's really powerful. Typically, how they're um, paid is per, per ball for per the ball of cotton that they use and the amount that they're that they're going to use on the project. But like I said, it's, it could take one person, you know, a significant amount of time, and another person less time so it just depends on in my in, in in there's a lot of factors as well that go into it like the complexity of the design like for example just a straightforward thobe is not like if you're doing like for example the connecting stitch the menage this is a lot mm. more difficult to do if you're going to be doing something that has uh, tahreere or like the couching yeah. stitch is it is it something that is has like a round design so round designs are much more difficult to do like if it's a skirt or something so there's a complexity to that design. So you, you can't chalk it up to just being like, oh, how many balls of thread did it take? Okay, whatever. No, it, yeah, there's yeah. there are things that are a lot more difficult to do with those supplies than yeah. it is to just do like a standard, you know, shawl or a thobe cool. even. Like there are other, th- like even the cuts themselves, am I gonna have embroidery like going running up all the way up? Are there things that they need to take care of like to go around? it's a lot to think about and they were never compensated before for like adding waste canvas and removing waste canvas anyone that does embroidery removing waste canvas wait lena you oh like me removing waste canvas i remember you i do that. not
2: i <laughs> despise waste despise. canvas is my enemy <laughs> yep despise
1: Oh, you hate it? Okay. <laughs> who said? Who once told me that they love removing waste canvas? I forgot.
2: God bless them. <laughs> yeah, I know,
1: right? <laughs> so yeah. So they were like, yeah, I'm not ala, removing the waste canvas. Something like one or two JDs for a full stop. I'm like, are you? A what?
0: Wow! Yeah. Wow! Wow!
1: That's that. These are the crazy numbers that are. I like. These are the crazy numbers that That's I upsetting. stumbled into. That's wild.
2: So, mm, it's infuriating that's like a
1: full job (laughs) that's a full job that needs to be compensated that's not okay and then you have beating as well like is there beating um and that's going to take time as well so we had to like create this full process um this system of like okay this design how much thread is it going to take okay how much time did it take um, who worked on it, like, was there beating, was there menaging, was there kaza, and so there's, there's a lot that go, went, goes into it, and I think that they, the way that they were just, you know, compensated before, I think, is so, so unfair, and, and Homme themselves, um, they are very afraid to lose these jobs, and the way that they were treated, unfortunately, for very long makes them, made them convinced that they can't speak up for themselves. And so when I would come in for like a, for, with a job or something and they feel like it was, it was going to take more time than I, than I initially like told the client or whatever, um, or something happened and then they needed to change something or whatever, their immediate you know phrase to me was in arabi was or don't get upset Mm -hmm. my you know my initial reaction was like wow why do you feel like you you need to say that yeah and so because i think for very long they're very afraid of losing Mm -hmm. these jobs and they're very afraid of for asking for more and so i think by working with not just me there are now you know people that are Uh, aware of this and that are compensating them all and them themselves are saying like no I usually get paid more for this and so it's become kind of like a movement for them in order for them to say like okay I know that my time actually you know I need to be compensated for my time like this and if you're not going to pay me this amount I've been paid like this before and that's how much I'm going to ask for and um, it's actually been uh, I think I think it's it's a difficult thing for them to even like to do it's I know that it's a difficult thing for me like I'm a people pleaser I know
2: yeah and it's
1: hard to ask for more especially when you know you, you can't work um legally for example yeah. when, you, mm-hmm. when you have no other means of getting um uh of getting money so you feel like okay I'm just gonna keep you my feel head trapped down and, yeah just yeah. keep I'm do whatever I need to do to feed my family and people take advantage of that
2: yeah absolutely that's that's so upsetting but i'm it's it's reassuring to hear that there are companies like dita that are trying to like right the wrongs and that it actually seems to be spreading amongst the embroiderers there and they're able to stand up for themselves you know i i know personally i had no concept of how long the threes took until i started stitching Mm -hmm. And that's why I love that what you, what you said earlier, Asada about people need to learn the first before yeah. they start, before they buy a thumb. I, I actually support that.
0: I think. I mean, I see. True. I see a collaboration in the works
1: right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm down.
0: Stay tuned, everyone. Stay Something's tuned. Coming. In.
1: That's just gonna make the process so long. Like you so, like like a university degree, like in four years.
2: <laughs> Are we gonna start at the Three's University? Oh, Amari, <laughs> but the, <three's laughs> the, nice. the marketing girly over here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So funny. So so Sada, I know you also, you guys have a collection coming up. I'm sorry, you have two collections coming up, right? The Medani and the Falahi collections. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about kind of like the inspiration behind um, the collections and the stories that are being told within the collection and the pieces?
1: Yeah, so um, we had the Medina collection that was supposed to launch in fall-winter this year, but unfortunately with the um, recent aggression on Reze, uh we were not able to uh, launch, but it just did not feel in any way like it was a priority at all, I mean, with everything going on. Um, our full focus has been to use our platform um, in any way possible to just shed light on the unimaginable conditions that are, that the people of Gaza are going through, and um, yeah, so we kind of uh, just um, we 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 basically just put the uh, products on our website for whoever you know would be um, interested. Um, and um, but yeah, but the Madani collection um, is like a precursor of like an idea. I actually did play around this idea of like the Madani and the Falahi. Um, cultures um, in our 2021 spring-summer collection, and I just love this um, this contrast in our culture. I really absolutely love it because I'm half Madani and half Falahi. My mom <laughs> is from Ramle, which is a Madani, like from the city. Are you what? from
2: Ramle? So my mom's family, so my mom's grandmother is from Ramle, the city, and then my, the rest of my mom's family is from the village, from El um, and so apparently my great-grandmother was a little shy had her because she was mad <laughs> at But I'm oh, like, girl, wow. you wound
1: up in the farm too. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the thing. Like, I'm half and half. So there's like this whole thing where they're like, oh, she's like... The daughter of a medanee, you know, of the the, the city woman. <laughs> and so,
2: I love Adam. <laughs> I
1: know. See, that's the thing. Like, I love the nuances, the really small, tiny details in mm-hmm. our culture. I absolutely love, love, love. And so, yeah. So I'm half medanee. My mom's from uh, from Al-Ramli, from the city, and my my dad's from Turkarem and they're like full fellahi, like we have, you know, olive groves and and all that. And so that's you know, I'm from both, from both, uh, you know, from both cultures. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So I think people that are non-Palestinian, especially people from the West don't actually realize that there are so many like mini cultures inside our big Palestinian culture. Like they even, even in the past, like people that would migrate from one city or one, um, region of palestine to the other would consider it like you were actually going to a foreign place and they would be so (laughs) sad that you're leaving you know like within palestine (laughs) and so yeah so i just i i love incorporating both those aspects of my personal heritage but as well as like the i love the contrast itself and i love like the mini kind of pettiness between the two. <laughs> right.
2: I do too. I do too. It's all a good it. fun.
1: <laughs> it's so much. Like if Fallaheen have like this, oh, you're like from the city and then the ال- El are a little bit stuck up, you know, like oh I don't work in the field <laughs> and you know <laughs> and so I love that. I love I also loved learning which was very interesting to learn about the Tatriz aspect itself from Vidat um, Qawad, which I'm sure you guys know is a giant in the world of Tatriz. And I um, I attended one of her um, lectures, online lectures in uh, COVID, mm-hmm. and she actually um, brought up a very interesting detail about trees which was the women that were in the cities historically in Palestine were the only women that actually had the time and the money to create very um, you know very uh, heavy thoes with a lot of embroidery and stuff like that so it was a very big symbol of status in the past
0: mm. and
1: so the women that wore a lot of tatries were considered like very wealthy very well-off women and then with time I, it was interesting to see that that became like, only for fallahi women because the fallahi women also wanted to look you know good mm. they wanted to look like they were well off too and so they would invest a lot of their money later on into thobes but the Medanine women had already moved on from thobes they were on to like western fashion Mm -hmm. and so that's how in when like we grew up we started seeing only women that were from the villages wearing soaps yeah but the women that were from the city had moved on to western fashion and it was no longer a symbol of status it was just a symbol of like folklore or you know just something that you know village women would wear and kind of lost its value Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wanted to delve into that. You know, I, I really wanted to understand, like, why did the Medani women do this? Like, now I, w- I felt a little bit of, I'm not going to lie, I felt a little bit of resentment. Like, you oh, mm-hmm. guys we <laughs> let go of something that was, you know, that we've had to reclaim. But yeah. in their defense, as I started learning more, and there's not a lot of documentation about this, but as I started kind of trying to understand the history at the time, um, I think at the time, I don't think they actually fully understood the scope of what was going to go on. Mm-hmm. I don't think they really understood, you know, could have forecasted the systematic erasure that was going to happen. And I think that the full, you know, indoctrination and, or the the deep-seated racism that was starting to take form from western colonization was just starting to take form in fashion as well. And mm-hmm. they wanted to look sophisticated. They wanted to be taken seriously. They wanted to look like, you know, like educated and, um, and I'm sure you know what I mean when I say that they wanted to be taken seriously. Like they wanted to be, to look like Westerners and to feel like they were on that level of fashion and they wanted to look fabulous, which is like, now I understand that obviously I'm, I'm not going out every day in a film, Yeah. You know,
2: yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
1: I understand why they would want to like blend in as well. Like I understand how they wanted to you know kind of uh, blend in and to be taken seriously and to go on and to, and to modernize even their own fashions and to create things that would be more innovative. And so I know now why that happened. And then as the falahi women kind of caught on to you know having more money and having more time and then them doing pottery. Unfortunately, it was kind of devalued. And I don't know whether that was like intentional or it was just a part of the times or how that happened. But I love that. I love, you know, exploring that aspect of Tatris. like how did we get here, how did we get to the point, and now I feel like there's like this shift back, you know, mm-hmm. there's like this push yeah. back. but I but I love highlighting that small, you know, that's, those small differences and nuances in our culture, so I love both, I love both cultures, <laughs> it's so beautiful. You I don't love, identify
0: as one or the other?
1: <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I've always lived in cities, so I probably, I'm probably Medani, but... <laughs> I mean, my father's side of the family, unfortunately, would say that I am Medani. But my mom's side of the family kind of see me as a jayusi, which is like. <laughs> so I'm not. I don't know which one I am. Um, Wait, but... so
0: tell, tell us more about how that comes out into the collection. Like, how do you how do you make something more medeni or more Fallahi in, in your collection specifically this time?
1: Yeah, so I want so I just wanted to, to make it like I wanted, I really did delve in kind of to learn about more about the history but then I came back and I was like, okay, when I, what do I, what do I know about Fallahi and Madani culture? Like, what do I Mm. see? Like, how is it, like I wanted to tie it back to personal, you know, um, experiences and what I saw when I was in Palestine and from my both sides of my family so Madani was kind of more, like, um, I felt like very rebellious like the Madani women are very rebellious and I love that about them they're very outspoken, mm-hmm. they're very, they, they have a world of their own and they're not going to let anyone tell them what they're going to do or what they're not going to do. And so I love that. And how do I translate that? And so I took more kind of masculine cuts as opposed to like very feminine um, uh, cuts and and, and uh, designs. So I took mm. like the, the tailored vests, for example, and I started mm-hmm. seeing like even historical images of women in like, in like tailored suits, like Palestinian women in tailored suits and um, even like the blazers and everything and having them like decked out in tatris meaning that they had a lot of tatris in there and embroideries and just kind of you know um merging those two things into like a very non-traditional look but at the same time having a lot of traditional tatris as well but then i also did like um uh, the zaytuna dress which had like the, the a very feminine kind of very beautiful cut as well because I wanted to um, just explore both sides of them, where the women were, like, very beautiful and very feminine, but at the same time they were, like, going into a new stage, pushing new boundaries and going out into Mm. the workplace and studying and stuff like that. So how do I translate all that into, like, fashion pieces? I wanted to create just a small, very concise collection that kind of spoke to that, to them going out into the world and being very you know, um, steadfast and wanting to do what they had in mind um, and, and uh, be educated and work and have their own money and all of that. And at the same time, them being like, um, you know, that having those, those dreams like every other Palestinian woman. And I don't know, it's just, it was, it was whatever I felt like, I, I, when I looked at those images and what I would remember from like my mom as well. You know, my mom is a business owner, too, and she Mm. she really taught me a lot about what it means to have that balance between being very, you know, rigid and between being very feminine as well. That's a very big topic in itself. (laughs) But like I (laughs) wanted that. That's what I saw in Medani women, you know, very determined, absolutely, you know, beautiful and feminine, but at the same time had this rigidness about them. Um, and the Falahi collection is still isn't is still in the works um, because I wanted to create um, like an homage to where I'm from, Turkerem. And Tur Karim, Tur Karim is a is a is a, a place in Palestine that didn't have that much embroidery because, like yeah. I said, historically they didn't have a lot of time. But they had this really distinct um, uh, style, which was like the the cotton dress, the white cotton dress that had very minimal embroidery on the inside but then very elaborate um, and beautiful like textiles on top that they would layer mm-hmm. um, so it kind of looked like it, it was all over the place but when you look <laughs> at it there's like it like a very and I remember seeing people from my family like wear that and I think that that whoa that's a really interesting you know way to wear embroidery but it turns out that that was like there was even different places in Tul and how they would layer um. and style it that I didn't know about and that's so really it was. Cool. Yeah, and so it's just been a journey of me trying to learn a little bit more about that and to create some pieces that will, um, you know, that will be kind of like a tribute to those, to the Fallahi women that I have so much respect for. They're very, um, my father's side of the family are Falahi, like I said, and I love their determination, their hard work. They're yeah, very loving, them. very simple women. Um, just women like my grandmother that I miss so much that, you know, had so much character to them, but at the same mm. time, like someone like my grandma was so, um, she was so eloquent and um, hardworking and didn't have a bad thing to say about anyone. And uh, just these women that inspired me so much, I want to pay tribute to them, and I'm sure everyone can relate when they think about their fam- Palestinian family as well.
2: Definitely, hundred percent, yeah. Can I ask, too, you're talking about like the fact that you really dove into the history here um, with both of these collections. Where are you diving into the history? Where are you finding your resources and how are you learning about this history?
1: So um, I think now we're kind of um, starting to document a little bit more. I think in the past, people would find it obviously very hard to find proper documentation to the history of Palestinian yeah. textiles and, uh, and embroidery. I'm so happy that now we have, I don't think it's enough,
2: mm-hmm. but we have a
1: few resources um, like books that um, I can probably send um, to you. Maybe you can link them. I'm sure Lina, like, has a full list. I, I actually maybe probably took some of the books from Lina's list. And, um, <laughs> but we'll, for we'll me... share
2: resources. Yeah,
1: share resources. And then for me, I think number one would be Without Carbar and her the Center. I learned yes. so much over there. And looking at the beautiful historical Thoops. Um, as well as, uh, I'm sure you guys know, uh, from Tatris and Tea, from A Fair Name. There are other, obviously, very large books that um, I still haven't finished, but my absolute <laughs> favorite is Threads of Identity. I absolutely Same. love that book. It's so I beautiful. I think the aspect of having the women that actually made the speak on, you know, their stories and their lives is the best way to learn about Tatris. And so, yeah, so those are you know, those books are the, the, the places that I have most of my information from. It's, I wish there was, there was more. I really wish there was more. Honestly, let's do a Tiltres University.
0: <laughs> working on it, girl, working on it. <laughs>
1: <That's true.
0: laughs> and then one, one more question, actually, on this topic. Do you involve the refugee women that you work with as well in these designs, or are these mostly like a Sara, Sara vision that you put into life?
1: so most of the time if it's like a if it's a complex design for example like if it's a wedding dress or if it's something that has a lot of embroidery that that are in places that i'm not 100 percent sure if it's going to work out since i'm not the one actually creating them myself i usually go back and send them like a picture like the reference picture that my customer would send me and i'd be like is this doable <laughs> Mm, you know, yeah. like I want to design this for her. Can we do it? <laughs> you know, yeah, and she'd be like, No, <laughs> you <know? laughs> we can't do that. Are you crazy? <laughs> or sometimes she'd be like, eh, Let's change the, the fabric. So uh, sometimes, like recently, I had a design that was a bit elaborate. Like, um, my customer actually wanted to create something that was so, you know. um it's kind of like Mad gala and so I loved that uh, I loved it I was <laughs> so excited like from a designer standpoint I was like yeah, let's do this let's do that and then I was like boy I learned my lesson let me talk to the embroiderers. so I talked to them <laughs> And they're like, "What? No." <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, what are you guys doing? No. <laughs> so it just depends. So we try to try to find ways around it. You know, try to find ways. But and even like obviously for fabrics, I have it has to go through them first. So I have to send them a sample, and they have to be able to be like, "Okay, I embroidered it. We're good." Because, um, like you know, I'm sure Lina and everyone that does embroidery in the many that some fabrics are either like silks, for example, or or it's gonna, yeah. it's gonna wrinkle at the embroidery. Yeah. or it's too yeah. thick, mm-hmm. or it, no, that this has too much embroidery on this fabric. We're gonna have to change it. So I have to have the fabric run by them first, and then I sample for my customer. So yeah, definitely, they're obviously in the midst of it.
2: I mean, you convinced me. uh, Lena knows this. I have been, (laughs) I've been dragging my feet on my thob because I am looking for the perfect fabric that I have envisioned in my head.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. Um, and I, I feel like I'm never gonna do it if I keep waiting. So I might need to, Sada, we might need to talk offline and find your most ambitious embroiderer to to do my (laughs) thob. (laughs) <laughs>
0: no, that's not the takeaway here. I'm oh, even... sorry. No, just kidding. No, no.
2: <laughs> no, the takeaway Look take at me being lazy. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I love convenience. You know this <laughs> <of> No. <way. laughs>
0: no, Sada, here's the problem. I think I also scared her because I didn't have that much knowledge about fabrics as well. And so I picked such a thick fabric. I don't know if we talked about this. Way. I think th- it is a thick, it was a it's painful so couple though. of years. Yeah. Beautiful, but really painful to stitch and also really heavy. So it is not, mm. it is my winter thaw, officially. It's not <laughs> my, any other time of the year. Um, but Amani's other problem is I believe, Amani, correct me if I'm wrong, but you want like a hot pink fabric, right? Yeah.
2: It doesn't need to be hot pink, but I want like a pink. I want <laughs> a magenta pink. I saw lo- I love a monochromatic moment. I want, yeah, I need like a <laughs> magenta pink fabric. Even I would be down with a baby pink fabric but and get, like just
1: are linens. Pink. Linens the See, best. See,
2: I know. Yeah, okay, we got, we'll talk, we'll talk. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> just get a, get a pink linen. <laughs> linens the best. Lina, have you embroidered linen?
2: I have. I just started uh,
0: one piece actually on linen. It's a lot. It's so much easier than so <laughs> whatever <easy>. I did. <laughs> yeah. Are you using waste canvas
2: on your linen, or are you do, uh, stitching directly? No, no, on the linen? I, okay. no. I'm
0: using the waste canvas. I haven't found okay. linen that's like that easy on my eyes. I, I'm not. I can't not, do that. Not not so fabric. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. There are
1: some weavers actually out of um, Egypt that mm-hmm. those um, that weave the actual old yeah like, traditional. Um, Linens that you can't see the pores through very easily. Um, oh, but again, I need mean, that. Like I, and then again, I ran this by my embroiderers. I'm like, I'm gonna source a, a linen out of yeah. Embroider on directly, and they're like, Amina you want, you wanna
2: exactly. You gotta get them the magnetic glasses that we use. These poor women. Oh my goodness, I feel for them. I'm sorry yeah they would probably hate me <laughs> with my requirements <laughs> oh man. this has been so much fun Sara, is there you know anything else that you want to share with the listeners about the threes, about dira about your journey um we've just been having so much fun chatting with you
0: and tell everyone also where they can find you all of oh, the different 100%. links
1: oh okay so uh can find me on Instagram at dita.co and they can find us as well on this on our website which is also dita.co and uh, yeah we have all our contacts and everything we're super small like if anyone just wants to contact me I'm I'm behind all of it I, like sometimes people like would this is funny sometimes with people would like dm um instagram and they'd be like can you connect us to your founder i'm like okay we're not." That- <laughs> <laughs> not
0: please, hold, please hold please
1: <laughs> hold <laughs> it's not that serious <laughs> well, so you guys can yeah so i just for me i think the number one is that I, I love chatting with you guys. I absolutely love this part of like the Toltres community. For me, this is the this has been such a joy to be able to connect with people like you, to learn so much from you guys, and to really be able to just together as a movement bring more um, and shed more light on Toltres and the people behind it and the history. Um, I think that's uh, extremely important. I think with everything right now going on, I just want to take a moment and say that the reason why we are even doing these talks, I think, and like having these conversations and shedding light on parts of our culture is because um, there is so much aggression against Palestinians from Israel and from um, colonization, and I think the number one thing that people need to understand is that there are... Obviously, tiers of aggression. Number one and the most um, relevant and the mo- what like the what deserves most of our attention is the violence and especially yes. the direct violence that is in like regions in Ruse. <sighs> and then there's also different other levels of violence and different levels of aggression and different levels of mm-hmm. erasure. And one level of that is the ratio of our culture, and one aspect of our culture is the trees. Because Tatri is, like um, a lot of us know, it's not just motifs. It's not just for the embellishment. It tells our story. Um, it proves that we were on this land. Mm-hmm. Um, it proves that we were there on that specific land. It tells a story of all of our ancestors. It tells a story of Palestine, the areas in Moudan, um, the, the different aspects of our culture. So when you see a Thob that is from different regions, like a thob from my dad's side of the family, for example, from Tulkarem, And then you see it tied to the specific agriculture that is from that region. Mm-hmm. And then you see another yes. thob that was from areas like Yafa, And you see it tied to the specific
2: yes.
1: um, like region over there from, regardless if it was the fruit or the sea or j- the city or the architecture. And you could tell from the motifs that she was from Yafa, or she was from Tulkarem, or she was from yeah. Ots. So they are tied to the land through the embroidery. And so if we tell their stories, I think it's so important, especially now, because we see how hard they're trying to erase us and how hard they're trying with violence and culturally. So Mm -hmm. I think the work that we're all doing in the Tutsiris community might seem, and sometimes I feel this personally, like I feel like it's not important or not... Uh, as important as you know as other aspects that Mm -hmm. of resistance but it is a part of resistance all of us are doing our part in small parts and larger parts and all of us as Palestinians as a movement we're all moving in the face of a very very powerful erasure of our culture and of our people Mm -hmm. and I think it's extremely important for all of us to kind of um, pay tribute and pay acknowledgement and just to say and I hope that um, that all of us together we can kind of just shed light and um, to to do whatever we can to raise awareness about all aspects of our culture and our people
2: definitely and I will say I I always say this and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face that is resistance Tatriz is political um, and It's so important to remember that and to say that and to name it um, because I strongly believe that everyone has their lane in the movement for Palestinian liberation and in the resistance. And you said this earlier Sada, but, you know, preserving this art is about preserving our stories, our ancestors stories is preserving the connection to the land. So, um, i i just really appreciate that and just want to definitely echo like and just say that like patrice is it is resistance and you know i know that sometimes for people because i i can relate to it sada like you know sometimes it feels frivolous i guess you know um compared to what's going on at home and what our friends and families back home are dealing with but it is powerful like I, I know Lena, I know you guys have had some the these circles since all of this started we have yeah. here in the Bay Area and we've had people come out who are not Palestinian and who are just like I just I, I just want to show up and you know so, so some solidarity like I'm not somebody who can do protests but like I can do this and um, I want to learn about your art um, so now I'm just rambling but I, I just feel very strongly about the three being um, a big part of Palestinian resistance. Um, and so I, I personally thank you for the work that you guys do at Dira, um and especially the work to uplift um, the women who are, are stitching all um, all the designs.
1: I actually just wanted to add one thing. Akif. I think it's so important. You know, we we brought up the um, the women in the camps and uh, them being refugees. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important to also remember why they're refugees. Yes, mm-hmm. and they are refugees because they were forcibly removed from their homes in Palestine. So if you yes. sit with the women in the camps, all of them will say and I am or mm. wherever or من من الأبيب, or in wherever and so it's really important to see how connected they still are with their homes and how this has become a healing process for them. And to also I also wanna say one last thing as well, that it's such a fine line and it's so important for us as as a, as businesses as well, like all of us are, like in the tattries kind of world, yeah. to to really be careful about how much we we want to shed light on on the employers and we want to shed light on them being refugees and try to help as much as we can, but also be sensitive to them as well and not try to overmarket the fact that yeah you know, to use it as yeah. a marketing technique. So I think there's so much sensitivity when it comes and like. Politicizing that comes in all of this. Um, I did not mention that before, but I actually wanted to. That sometimes a lot of businesses will overmarket the fact that they work with like 200 refugees or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, but if, you know what? That's not okay because if if they, that was the case, like if they as they market on their websites, the whole demographic of the camp would be changed. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone would be doing well. The camp would probably yeah. not exist anymore because everyone was just you know sky high with all this income. But um, it's important to, you know, um, be aware of that as a community. When someone yeah, overmarkets yeah. the fact that um, they work with a lot of refugees, or um, overmarket the fact, you know, put too much emphasis on the point to just—I'm not saying not to trust everyone, but it's a very sensitive subject. They're also very private people, and yeah. um, um, to, there, there's always that where you want to shed light on them and their their circumstances but also want to respect the fact that they're actually they don't want to be refugees mm-hmm. they don't want yeah. to were forced into the situation mm-hmm. and it could have been easily me or anyone else um it's yeah. just yeah. pure luck hundred
2: 100 and yeah. I, I will say this as a, a marketing person like don't like i think what you're trying to say too is like they should not be a marketing strategy exactly, exactly. like it's it's not a marketing tactic like at all. So I, I definitely hear that and, and respect that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, Sara, thank you so much for joining us. We are nice. so blessed to have you. Thank and you. for anyone who didn't catch it, it's at Co. D E E R A H dot co on Instagram, and their website is the same link. Thank you so much.
2: Thank, thank you, Sara. All right. Well, big thank you to Sada from Dita again for joining us. Um, That was our actual, that was our first interview. Officially. Um, Yeah. Official first interview. How do you think it went, (laughs) Lena?
0: Well, I love Sada. She is a dear friend of mine. So I knew that she would deliver and we really delved into so many, actually more topics than I expected. Um, And I think, one of my favorite parts was, nobody knows this, but after the recording finished, we had a little visitor come into the room, <laughs> and he was such a cutie. Um, but yeah, no, really incredible um, just conversation overall. I don't know. What was your favorite part, favorite topic?
2: Honestly, like I really love the fact that Dieta's is really dedicated to ensuring that their embroiderers are compensated fairly, because I think... It feels like one piece, but it's like one very important piece to a bigger um, a bigger puzzle. You know, like, we've talked a lot about the fact that, like, these gets devalued, which is a conversation we had um, mm-hmm. with Sara, you know, where people don't really understand how much work it takes unless you actually Tadris yourself. Um, and I think that the devaluation of Tadris, the, the fact that these women have not been properly compensated and have gotten taken advantage of, for so many years, like I think that all contributes to the loss of tetris, which also is something that Sarah Sarah touched on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really love that, and honestly, it. I gotta hit up Sada because I actually really want to go to one of the camps and like learn from these women, um, you know, and just kind of learn from their, their skill and experience. And like she was talking about how quickly they can troubleshoot things. And I'm like, yeah. I want to, I want to understand. I want
0: those tricks. Yeah, exactly. No, what I definitely, you? I mean, I definitely think there's a collaboration that's making my brain move <laughs> because that is, that is, it's, it's so true. Like you really don't know how much energy and time and like passion has to go into one of these pieces. It's, and you only know when you, when you do it yourself, I think there's if we can help solve that on a yeah. like a, at a scale, you know that would be huge because that would just change the entire industry completely, and you know maybe actually take out some of these women from being in that refugee status. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's not only you know uh, like income wise, but that can be the piece that we can support
2: you know more
0: directly, given that we practice ourselves. Um,
2: Definitely, and I mean that's the thing. There are designers, especially particularly in the fashion world, but like there are that these designers in that world who I mean their pieces go for yeah. a few thousand dollars yeah and quite frankly I would have probably thought that was crazy before I started stitching mm-hmm. but now I'm like I get it like yeah. I, I completely get it um I also completely understand that not everyone can afford that um
0: yeah that's I thinnest, would, yeah. She, yeah she spoke about it so eloquently like this this very fine balance mm. between the accessibility and then the actual understanding and uh, um, d- uh, what is the word?
2: Appreciation, I guess, yes. for, for that work. Uh, yeah,
0: no, just really fantastic. We'll have
2: to bring her on again because we can talk to yeah. her for hours. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I personally love Tatris in fashion and particularly love the, I guess, quote-unquote modernization of mm. it, um, but yeah, I I, I definitely am going to, probably spend some money on Diyadah after <laughs> <laughs> I have a tolb from them too. I highly recommend. <laughs> highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually love the thobe I just got from them and we'll be doing a full-on photo shoot <laughs> when I Can't come back from my trip. <laughs> cannot wait. Cannot wait. Uh, well, this has been amazing and thank you all so much for listening to Tatri's Talk. Um, we actually want to hear from you about your Tatri's journeys. So... Send us an email, send us your stories. Our email is talk at gmail.com and we might have you on an upcoming episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platforms and be sure to leave a, far, a five-star review. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow me at Min Amani and Lena at Lena's Tob and you can follow the pod at Tetris Talk. Thank you guys so much for being here. We'll talk to you next time.